Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics, and ending the stigma through educational discussions. Today, we're very excited to have Melissa Lovansani, founder, chairwoman, and executive director of the Plant Medicine Coalition. Melissa was the proposer of Washington, D.C.'s successful 2020 ballot measure, Initiative 81, the Entheogenic Plant and Fungus Policy Act. Inspired by her own experience of using plant medicines to heal her postpartum depression, Melissa led the Decriminalized Nature DC campaign to the largest ballot initiative victory in the history of our nation's capital. Through the Plant Medicine Coalition, Melissa continues the work of the implementation of Initiative 81 and DC's new law enforcement priorities regarding plant medicines. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Melissa. We're so happy to have you here. This is like my favorite discussion to have, so I am happy to be <laughs> here. Oh, we always like to hear about how our guests got involved with plant medicine, and I just have to say that your postpartum depression story is dear to my heart. I suffered the same 26 years ago, and I remain on the SSRIs that I desperately would like to find a way off of today. Um, and just would love to hear more about your story. Yeah. So I've lived a pretty normal average life. Um, I was born in DC actually, but I grew up in Minnesota and um, I'm a product of Iranian immigrants. So I'm first generation American, um, which was a very interesting upbringing in the Midwest, but you know, nothing true traumatic. Um, I went to college. I got my, one of my graduate degrees right after college. I moved to DC for an internship. And, you know, just working regular jobs. I've worked in commercial real estate, finance. Um, I've done government contracting. But, um, you know, I, I assumed my big thing in life would just be to achieve, like, the very basic goals, have a family, have a reliable job, um, have some good friendships. But, um, you know, I was pregnant with um, my first child and um, in 2014, Lola, she's six years old now. And I had a, a mild postpartum depression, which I didn't really even recognize at the time. Um, you know, I was just really isolating myself and, um, you know, not socializing with other new moms. I had a few friends that had babies around the same time, and I never, never even hung out with each other during my uh, maternity leave. But, um, and, you know, my husband didn't notice anything. I was, it, it was very well hidden. And, um, you know, I went to work, I got back into working, having a solid workout routine, eating better. And I, I've lifted myself out of it. Um, with my second child, um, I acknowledge that I enjoyed my routine. I've been an athlete my whole life. I played, t uh, tennis in college and, um, you know, I, 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 I made it a priority to be active during my pregnancy until I, was dealing with really severe sciatica. So I had really crazy pain all day long, which escalated into the evening and to a point where like I was crawling on all fours. I was in so much pain. So um, staying fit while pregnant was, wasn't really an option. And that kind of snowballed into, you know, just not taking care of myself in general. And I got what is called antipartum depression, which no one really talks about. Um, I was in my doctor's office one day and it, my regular doctor was gone. So I was seeing somebody else and this woman walked in and uh, she asked me how I was doing. <laughs> and I just immediately started crying. And, 
you know, before I even looked up, uh, she was writing a prescription to antidepressants and she was like, trust me, like, this is just going to help you get through it. And, um, you know, it's not harmful for you. It's not harmful for the baby. Just take these, take this medication and make it through your pregnancy. You'll get off when you deliver the baby. Um, so I took it, but I, I thought to myself, you know, I really don't want to get on something like this while I'm pregnant. Um, I know they say that it's not harmful for the baby, but you know, you never really know. And I did have some friends that had experience with antidepressants and I saw that I, I knew it was a process to get off of them. And, um, I had actually had a friend who took his own life while he was getting off antidepressants. So, um, I just told myself, you know, I'm going to put this aside and just try and manage this on my own. Um, I made it through the pregnancy fine, but um, about a couple weeks after I delivered uh, Ramsey, my second child, in 2017, um, I slipped into a really severe depression. And this one was completely different than my first experience of having it just for a few months with my first child. This was um, really insane. <laughs> bouts of anxiety. I would have panic attacks. Like at some point it was like once a week I was having a panic attack. Um, I was raging at my husband. I withdrew from my work and, you know, I was just trying to, I, I would go to work every day, just like make it through the day. Um, had, I had my like secret spot in my building where I would go and like cry when I needed to. I had, you know, I had a manager at the time who was a mother to young children. So she was, she knew what was going on. She was extremely sympathetic. I would cry in her office frequently. Um, you know, everything just started to spiral out of control. I was isolating myself from all my friends and family. I was barely speaking to my family and I'm really close to them. And we normally talk a lot and, you know, I was completely withdrawing from everything in my life. Um, it got to a point where I was even hearing voices in, um, in my bedroom where, you know, I just, and I, and at the time, and, and that sounds really extreme, and of course that would be alarming, but at the time I was, I was in such a deep hole that it was not even alarming to me. But I remember I mentioned something to my husband about this, where I was like, yeah, the voices I'm talking to. And he was like, his jaw dropped. I remember, I'll never forget his face because he knew I was struggling. He has a background. I mean, he works for DC government as same as I do. And, um, he, in, in policy, politics, but he has a background in social work. So he has some idea how to deal with sticky situations in a family. And he was completely dumbfounded. Um, I was finding every excuse I could to get out of therapy. Um, you know, I was, I was just miserable, spiraling out of control. I had convinced myself that, um, you know, my family would be better off without me. So, you know, I was dragging everyone through the mud. I wasn't being the mom that I always envisioned I would be. I, wouldn't, I wasn't being the wife. I was completely neglecting my physical health, my mental health, everything. And, um, you know, he, he was dragging me to couples therapy because I'd convinced myself that we were just having issues with our marriage. But he knew that the issues with our marriage were related to my depression. And until... I figured out my depression, he, our marriage, everything, you know, you know, when you deal with a situation like this, it's, it permeates through every part of your life. So, um, we were, I was begrudgingly going to couples therapy, not realizing that it was just intention, like it was intentional for me, but, um, you know, we were on a road trip, um, to Alabama for the holidays where my husband is from. 
And a friend um, shot me a text message was like, you know, you need to listen to this Joe Rogan podcast with Paul Stamets. Um, and so I Googled Paul Stamets real quick and I was like, why do I want to listen to this? You know, a mushroom scientist, that's really weird. Uh, you know, we had nothing else better to do. We were in the car, we we're driving overnight while the kids were sleeping in the back. And it was like two and a half hours of a conversation that completely blew my mind. And uh, they were talking about psilocybin mushrooms. And, um, you know, it, it sound it didn't sound insane to me. Um, Paul, if anyone has ever heard Paul, he's very engaging when he speaks. He's extremely knowledgeable about mycology. And I was enthralled by the conversation. And, you know, I had zero experience with psychedelics recreationally. It was the one, one of the drugs that I never tried in my partying days. Um, I was extremely scared of them. I always assumed that people that took psychedelics, you know, just wanted to escape reality and couldn't deal with adulthood. Um, you know, I had a couple of friends have really bad experiences on mushrooms, and I think that probably influenced my perception of them. And, um, but my husband's perception of them was completely different. He grew up in a culture where they would go to the cow pastures in their small town and pick mushrooms. And, you know, that's, that's what they would do for fun. And they would go see music. And he would always say, you know, every time that I took mushrooms with my friends, I would feel amazing at, for the next few weeks. And this kind of makes sense to me. So I feel like we should try this. <laughs> and, um, you know, at that point in time, it was, it was a choice made out of desperation. I was insistent on not going on any pharmaceutical medication still. I was really failing at therapy. And I knew I wanted to take my own life. I knew that I'd convinced myself that there was another woman out there that would have been a better mother to my children. And like, I had I had my mind set on this. So I, I thought, well, why not just give this a go? You know, why the hell not just try this? And um, we started growing psilocybin mushrooms in our bedroom. And, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult process, but, um, you know, there's plenty of resources on the internet. We would frequently watch YouTube videos about it and Reddit tutorials. And, um, you know, we finally got a, a batch of mushrooms where I, you know, my safe entry into using psychedelics for mental health was microdosing. Um, I, I wasn't comfortable with a full trip. Um, I thought um, uh, if I could just take a microdose where I'm not, you know, I'm not having any kind of visuals or anything. It's just something I can add into my daily life. Um, let's just see how this goes. Um, but within like really three days, I um, started to feel my humanity come back to me. And it's, it's a really strange feeling to feel that. Unbelievable. You're so, when you're in that deep depression, you just like, you feel everything, but you also feel nothing. And, um, I started to have the, that variety of mo emotions, you know, and I would still struggle, but it was a struggle that I could manage better now. Um, so, you know, after a microdosing on and off for a good six months, six to eight months, um, we had a really hard time growing more mushrooms. It's, it's really tricky to do it if they get contaminated months of work can get ruined. So, um, I, I stopped microdosing and then I, serendipitously got introduced to an ayahuasca shaman through a, a friend of mine. And um, at that point in time, I was like, well, the mushrooms kind of did work. And maybe I just need to go and do sit and sit in ceremony with a, an expert that knows about this and try this out. So um, my first experience with ayahuasca was extremely um, life changing. 
Um, it was physically painful, emotionally painful. It was a completely different experience than I thought it was going to be, but um, I felt like myself and I felt like a better version of myself. So I did a couple ceremonies and um, that's the, that's the same time that the Denver decrim campaign was happening. So I was experiencing this healing on an extremely profound level in, a, in an extremely quick amount of time. Like this is, um, you know, to, to be in the, the place that I was in in my life and to have something that so quickly turned it around for me um, was extremely profound. So I was watching the Denver campaign and I'm like, well, you know, D.C. was at the forefront of cannabis reform. Um, we, we decriminalized and legalized well before many other jurisdictions did. It's a really progressive city. Maybe we can, we can use our contacts and our connections within DC government to see if we can move something here. So we started to, we reached out to Kevin Matthews in Denver and, um, you know, we were just like, how's your campaign going? What materials are you using? And so he shared everything with us and he connected us to various people in the drug reform world and we're having conversations. And our intention was, you know, to create or to kind of cultivate those relationships and um, use our connections within the local government here to assist a campaign. Um, some time passed and, you know, our lives had moved on. I got a new job. Um, we're very busy with two little children. So nothing happened for a long time. But we got a call one night from um, Adam Eidinger, who is the man that ran the cannabis reform here in D.C. And I had learned that Dr. Bronner's um, was funding all these campaigns all around the country. And he was interested in what in a D.C. campaign and what it would look like. And um, the Bronner's team knew that it couldn't look like cannabis reform and that this is a completely different subject matter. And they all, they all wanted me to be the face of it. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like I will help out a campaign as much as I can in the background. I am not, a, I'm not, uh, I've never wanted to be like known for anything or fa like famous for anything. Like I, I'm happy being the person in the back. That's like making the phone calls, sending the emails. Um, I'm not the front woman for this. And they were like, they were, they insisted and, you know, it just got to a point where for this campaign to be successful, it had to be presented in a completely different way. Um, the D.C. audience is much different than the West Coast audience. Um, you know, there is a, a vibrant psychedelic community on the West Coast and there is a community here in D.C., but it's a bit more underground. People are a bit more socially conservative here. Um, and I knew that a campaign that was talking about psychedelics would really have to change hearts and minds of people here. Um, there are communities in DC that have really been ravaged by the drug war. And the moment you say psychedelics, they immediately think about more drugs coming into the community and causing more damage. So, um, we really needed to have a messenger who was really credible and what's more credible than a professional working mom of two little children. Um, so I said I would do it. I backed out the last the night before we were submitting all the paperwork and I said I, I completely freaked out. I was like, I this is too much for me. I'm going to be putting my kids in the public and I can't control people's perception of them, people's perception of me, and you know, what if all the mothers in school 
uh, ostracize us and no one wants to play with my children. Like I kept thinking of, I put my kids through so much the last few years with my depression. I cannot put them through any more harm than I already have. And something in my gut was just telling me, you need to do this. You've come this far. You are having all these conversations with people. This is the moment where that you really need to take advantage of. And you need to, you need to send this message to the public that, you know, psychedelics are not taboo. Mental health is not taboo and that people are struggling and nobody's talking about it. And that was like the most frustrating thing for me was that I was experiencing this healing, but I was breaking the law and I couldn't talk about it with anybody. And, um, I wanted to talk about it with everybody. So, um, I bit the bullet and the next day we submitted the paperwork and, um, you know, we, we left town for the holidays and, um, we came back in, in January, 2020, we kicked off the campaign and it was all history from there. And, um, it was it's Probably so incredible, Lisa. Yeah. We're, oh, thank you. You're we're just so you're so brave. We just appreciate <sighs> you so much. I mean, you you did you took that moment as as all of us as moms would to say, you know, we put our kids first. You know, we want to worry about them. But being so brave and doing what you're doing is like the best way to have that legacy that your children are going to be so proud of you. So we're just as moms, we're just oh, like, we appreciate you. you so much. And we're just, we're so enamored by how you took this initiative by, you know, yes, you're using your personal story, which we just applaud you for, but you're letting this be known that we are in a mental health crisis in this country. This is yeah. a story after story of these things that are happening with people and these plant medicines can really help one another. So I'm curious about when you made that initial, you know, call out to, to, Colorado, let me gather some of this information. How did you then, did you then reach out to decriminalize nature? Like how did the, did the organization as a whole end up helping you on your localized level? Well, you know, initially I was just working with the Dr. Bronner's team and um, the network of cannabis activists that he had here. Um, they understood that this wasn't a cannabis kind of campaign that, I, you know, and I, I kind of set set the standard that, you know, if I'm going to put my name out there, I'm putting my kids out there, I want, I'm going to run this campaign how I think it should be run. And they were, they all agreed. And um, so I got introduced to Decrim Nature team in January and, you know, they, they were helpful. They definitely paved the way for this entire political movement to happen in this country. But, you know, it decriminalizing psychedelics in Oakland for example, is extremely different than um, decriminalizing psychedelics in Washington, D.C. Our audience is completely different. Um, the issues that we deal with here are different. And it, it became when I knew that I, I had, and I had friends in D.C. Council or people that at least I'm friendly with when I approached them about potentially them introducing legislation um, nobody wanted to touch us with a 10 foot pole. I knew we had to do a ballot initiative and, um, you know, the cannabis cannabis reform happened here through ballot initiative as well. So I was using the infrastructure that was already existing. And, um, you know, I would go to the decrim nature team whenever I was stuck with, on something, but, you know, we were a completely different animal. So, 
And then in March, the pandemic happened and that completely wiped the slate clean for anybody who knew anything about campaigning. You know, we were all guessing on what to do next. And I know the Oregon State campaign was in the same position where, you know, campaigning looks like it's never looked before. And how are we going to move forward um, with this signature drive that requires in-person interaction and being in close quarters with people when everyone is trapped in their house. And it was a real challenge. And there were many times where, you know, I was asking Dr. Bronner's for more money because we were, we were at a point where we had to first change laws to allow us to mail initiative, the actual petitions to people's homes. And um, then I knew mailing petitions to all the registered voters in DC uh, would be extremely expensive. So um, there was a point in time where we didn't even know if the campaign was going to move forward because it was such a huge investment for them. Um, super fortunate that we're in a very strange way that we're in this pandemic and a soap company um, who also was making hand sanitizer, you know, they, they were thriving and they were doing well. And, you know, David Bronner really believed in me through many conversations of me just being like, let's please move forward, please. Like, let's, let's, we cannot, we've made it so far. We had momentum and we were getting a lot of good press at the time here locally that, um, you know, he, he decided to make an additional investment and, you know, we eventually did change the laws in DC so that we can mail the petitions and, and then, people can submit digital signatures to us as well. So we changed a few things um, through lobbying DC DC council that, um, you know, every, every single registered voter in the district got a package from our campaign with a picture of my family and a letter from me explaining my story, testimonials from other people who had um, experienced healing through plant medicines we, they got the petition, they got instructions. Um, so that went to every registered voter's household and no one's ever done that before. And we didn't even know if this would work because <laughs> it requires so many like touch points. Like when you're doing a signature drive, you're standing outside of metros, you're standing outside of bars, standing outside of concert venues where there's a lot of traffic going in and out and you're being engaging with people, you're having those dynamic conversations, they get to ask you questions about the initiative and um, the details about it. And we weren't allowed to do that. So we had to get really creative with how we reached voters. And it was fortunate that, um, you know, we did this mail out, um, this mail out campaign. Um, the mail, we had no idea what the returns would be like, we eventually got like 9000 signatures through mail in digital submission, which is amazing. We were hoping for 15,000. We needed amazing. I know. I cannot believe we pulled it off. We we needed like a, just under 25,000. And um, the goal was to get 36, like 35,000 to give us that cushion because signatures inevitably come back um, invalidated with like a, an address is wrong or someone thought they were registered and they weren't. So um, we got 9,000. We kind of started to panic because I knew that David Bronner had put a lot of money into this campaign, but um, the city started to open up again. So um, we were in phase one or phase two, phase two of reopening. And um, 
we started to like table outside of grocery stores because that's where the only place anyone was going at that time. So we hired a health and safety officer who ensured that we all of our COVID protocols were um, on point and we were practicing or we were getting signatures safely. So every table would be set up in a certain way. We would have it taped off on the ground. So if somebody was within that taped um, area, the person behind the table was stepped away. So we were maintaining distance. There was plenty of hand sanitizer. No one used a pen twice in a row. So we were, we were doing everything right. And then the city opened up to the next phase where people felt more comfortable with going outside and spending time outdoors. So we then we started to roam into public um, spaces where people were, you know, taking a break from their from their homes, and uh, we were engaging in conversation, which was really hard to do with a face mask in the middle of summer, um, where you're you can't get super close to somebody, but you know you want to articulate what the initiative is and what like what what the role that plant medicine plays and all that. So it was extremely challenging and. Um, but extremely gratifying because the conversations that we were having were really interesting. Um, people's people do have a perception of psychedelics here, but um, when people hear my story or they hear about the research that's existing, it's pretty hard to refute that these are really valid therapies. So, um, you know, people were really receptive to this and, there was a point in time where, you know, we knew we were going to get our signatures and I knew we could win this, but, um, yeah, we were all, it was an entire guessing game the entire time. We're like, we think this is the right decision. Let's just shoot for it and hope that we get what we want. Now I wasn't expecting the 76% at all. Um, I was thinking we'd land in the sixties and cause you know, cannabis, is extremely like way more popular than psychedelics, you know, and they were, they landed in the sixties um, with their percentage, but um, election night was 76%. I thought somebody was playing a joke on me <laughs> and I'm like, what? No. And, and it was my, I was, so I was awesome. getting interviewed and my, hu- my husband, we were down at the mall. We had this whole setup. I was getting interviewed in front of the Washington monument, which was this really weird, surreal moment. And my husband comes like running up to me. He's like, you got it. 76%. I was like, no, 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 no. That's like, tell me the real number. <laughs> He's like, 76%. I have goosebumps. <laughs> me too. I know me too, actually. So, so awesome. And I was like, I, I, I keep imagining what this phone call must have been like to these grocery stores when you're saying during the pandemic, can I come and set up a, a, can you tell me like, what would that phone call sound like when you call a grocery store and say, I'm a part of this initiative and and they just let you come? They were okay with you just setting up there? Or how did well, that we look? Were, we were set up outside. So we were technically in public space. And this is a, an, an act of freedom of speech. So, but there were some grocery stores that were like, you got you to gotta leave our property. And we, we wanted to be good players. We knew this was a really stressful, intense time for people. So anybody that complained about us, we were just like, okay, that's fine. You know, I, the, the whole point of our campaign was to be the good guys and to, for people to perceive us as friendly and we don't want to shake things up. We're not trying to start an argument. We don't, we don't ever want to be combative with DC council. We want to, DC council to see us as allies here. So um, 
I was really insistent on us having good relationships with the public and with government. So if there was ever a moment where we were shaking feathers, we were like, I would just like reel it in a little bit. Um, but it was, it's challenging, you know, it, it's, it's hard because at the time, like, I think right now we're so, a bit more So was the coalition? Go ahead. Right. No, I was just going to say, so the coalition was really born out of this. And then all of a sudden you're in the hot seat again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the coalition was born out of this. I was, um, you know, I was thrown into the psychedelics movement um, completely blind. I knew very little. I mean, I knew what was going on, but, you know, I learned a lot on the job, really. And um, I saw that there was nobody speaking to our federal government about psychedelics. I mean, you know, MAPS was doing a lot of work, um, but they were really focused on their clinical trials with MDMA and cannabis. But who is speaking to the federal government? And honestly, like, what are those, what do those people look like? Is it, is it going to be this, like, completely whitewashed cannabis movement where, you know, the intentions were good, but, you know, now we have people making a lot, a lot of money from cannabis while we still have people of color still in jail. So, um, you know, I knew that the whole um, ethos of psychedelics is to heal trauma and um, to serve those that need it the most. And um, why, what better than a female-led organization that considers all these issues? Because if I'm not speaking to our federal government, lobbying them, to pass reforms or lobbying them for research on psychedelics, like who is going to be speaking to them? Is it the people that are advocating for big business? Um, you don't know. So uh, this idea came out of like a, a real need for the movement to have a credible messenger with the federal government. Um, you know, we can we we can pack package this in a certain way that feels very safe for lawmakers. You know, they're not willing to put their necks out for a lot, but our strategy is, you know, again, to be an ally to government and to speak about science and speak about the narratives, um, because the narratives are very important. I mean, all of this was born out of a necessity that we have in our society right now. Our healthcare system is not equipped to deal with this mental health crisis, as, as well as other crises, right? Like we're, we have this opioid crisis that is raging and is continuing to get worse and worse as the pandemic progresses and we're not addressing it. So, you know, plant medicines can fill that void, um, but it definitely has to be presented in a certain way. And um, that was my intention with Plant Medicine Coalition to present this as um, something that can really be a real positive for society. And so how do you then fund the coalition and how, how do we all get involved with you? How do we support you? We are just started fundraising right now. Um, you know, I'm still working in my day job at this, at this moment. So, you know, this, a lot of this work is really late nights and working over the weekend. So, you know, we are getting our ducks in a row right now um, to start really fundraising and we'll see who's interested in this. You know, Dr. Bronner's has committed some funds for us, um, very generously committed funds to us. And, you know, a lot of those funds for this year are going to be going towards implementation of Initiative 81 in D.C. Um, but we need we need definitely need more money to do the federal work that we need to do. And, you know, we have um, we have a really unique opportunity here. 
that um, this uh, a government relations firm named American Continental Group has taken us on as a pro bono client, and they are very well established, very um, you know well respected within government and advocacy, and you know we have access to their networks essentially. So. Um, you know, we have really good relationships with people in Congress. And now that we have majority in Senate, there's a unique opportunity to get some reforms through with plant medicine. It's probably not going to be what everyone wants it to be and not going to be a big enough, bigger step than everyone wants. But, you know, our federal government is not going to deschedule any of these medicines until there is data behind it. You know, it's great that there's clinical trials and, you know, that can translate into real like therapeutic applications, but we need more data around psychedelics. So our initial ask is $100 million towards through National Institute of Health for research on psychedelics. Um, we're, we're including four indications for anxiety, PTSD, um, depression, and addiction, and we're including... Um, eight different medicines. So, um, and you know, we're going to throw them everything, <laughs> you know, we want I naturally occurring DMT, ayahuasca, psilocybin, MDMA, um, iboga. We're going to ask for all of it, knowing that they're probably going to cut it down. Um, they probably would feel safer with maybe just psilocybin and MDMA because that's the research that's currently existing, but you know, it's a start and it's a really important start. And, um, there are going to be a lot of people that aren't on board, but at least we'll be in the same room and having like, those conversations. And that's that's the kind of work that needs to happen. This isn't going to be a quick turnaround. Our our federal government's not going to be like, well, our nation's capital decriminalized us. We might as well do it too. They don't work like that. Um, it's it's really just like being persistent and constantly educating our lawmakers on these issues. And um, you know, we're here for that. And the way people can help us right now is, you know, if we do, we are developing our local plan r right now. And, we, you know, we have this, um, these community creation grants that we will eventually be granting out funds to local community hubs here in DC that will be educating people on plant medicine. And, um, you know, uh, we need messengers here locally to, um, talk to people about these, like what plant medicine is and what is safe use and um, what are the practices and what is the cultural history that you need to understand with some of these medicines and why you need to respect them. So um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but, you know, as soon as we get over the fundraising hurdle, which hopefully uh, the next few months we will, I'm um, planning to leave my job for good <laughs> and transition into this role um, full time and, you know, just hit the ground running. And, you know, this is, this is a long game and um, I'm here for it. This is, it's really, it's really an exciting time. So we are also for anyone that um, doesn't live in DC and you know, wants to start a local campaign or wants to start having these conversations with their legislators and their jurisdictions, you know, we will help support them. You know, um, you know, we do have a local and state affairs office and those reforms on the local level are going to be really important for our federal government as effort as well. Um, 
as soon as we start to build this body of data and more and more jurisdictions decriminalize and pass plant medicine reforms, that kind of burns the candle at both ends where, you know, our our federal government's going to hit, this whole thing's going to hit a tipping point where our federal government's going to have to act. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not going to be top down. It's going to be coming from both ends. And um, the federal government's really going to be looking at what cities and states are doing. Like, I think Oregon's going to be a test tube, really. Um, what did Oregon, what is Oregon going to do right? And what are things that maybe need to improve for other jurisdictions? So um, there's a lot happening and it's happening very quickly, but um, it's a really exciting time. It really is. And, and I, I like what you said about how, you know, we can lend, you know, ourselves to learn from some of the things that happen in, on the West Coast. But, you know, D.C. is different. And I'm from Pittsburgh. And I can tell you in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we're going to do things a lot differently, too. So I'm really excited to hear that the Plant Medicine Coalition is going to offer that support for other community leaders, because mm -hmm. I know that in my hometown, I love to be able to bring up these conversations and have been really struggling with ways of like where to get started and what are the right resources and what's the right method at which to bring this about. You know, I know that, you know, I'm not sure if it would be a ballot initiative, you know, would it have to be going through, you know, the local city council. So sign me up as one of your first cities, as someone that wants to help you. Um, and, and it's not a very far drive. It only takes me about three hours oh. or so to come down and visit Elizabeth. So, you know, I, I'll come down and be one of the mouthpieces on your volunteer tour of spreading the education around uh, plant medicines too, because that's certainly what we were just so drawn to your story and everything that you're doing, because, you know, as moms, Elizabeth and I wanted to create this podcast as a way to just bring up these discussions and mm -hmm. let everybody know that, you know, these stigmas, we need to start changing them by telling these real honest stories and understand mm -hmm. that the reason people are so passionate about this is because it's really been so impactful and changing in their own lives. Mm -hmm. And that this is why we're getting behind it and why we're so passionate about it. And it is different than cannabis. And I saw how the state of Pennsylvania has, has, you know, been very good with keeping, you know, the medical side and has a a really great medical program for cannabis, but this is different. This is, you know, mm -hmm. we need to ensure that this is like a different conversation. So I am really curious and interested to continue to follow you and know that I'm really interested in seeing how I can get these conversations brought up in my hometown. And I'm sure there's lots of other listeners that are tuned in that want to know how they can support you. So hopefully, you know, some businesses that want to make those larger donations, you know, we yeah. want to make sure that they come in and, and give some money. But also if there's someone listening that, you know, MAPS has done a great job by just saying, hey, community, who wants yeah. to give? And people will come out in amazing ways. So I think that with yeah. the efforts that you've put forward, there's going to be a lot of individuals as well that are going to be willing to give. Yeah. And yeah. having worked inside the Beltway and for all of these different publications, I think, you know, maybe we need to get them on board uh, doing some, you know, issue advocacy ads for you as PSAs. And, um, yeah. you know, I too want to help you and, and gather warriors for you. Um, because this is that. near and dear to, to my heart, to our hearts. And, um, I mean, I just can't believe thinking about you and where you were having a baby and then yeah. they sort of twisted your arm and it's like, okay, and now it's a coalition and this yeah. is going to change your work. And oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's really is, incredible. It's an incredible story. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I never, I, I'd always say I never, I'd do anything, but I never work in politics, but this, this is, 
the the experience that I went through with my depression and the isolation I felt and you know just having friends in almost the exact same place in life where it, like I had that safe space I had an extremely supportive husband who did everything he could to help me I had both of my parents are alive and still together and supportive and my in-laws are wonderful people I had everything as far as like a system wide um, thing, like I had everything that I needed and I still almost lost my life. So when I was thinking about this campaign and one of the reasons why I did move forward with it, even despite my fears was for all those people that don't have those systems. Like there are many husbands out there who are well-intentioned, but can't deal with a situation of a, 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 their wife, a, a new mother, um, dealing with depression, they they wouldn't know what to do. Or, you know, somebody that's working so many jobs and doesn't have the compassionate manager. You know, it was okay for me to call out sick when I was really feeling terrible. But a lot of other people don't have that. So it, this is a cause that's it, it's extremely important to me. And, um, you know, I, I hope that this is my good contribution to the world. I am um, I love doing this work. I'm never I never get tired of these conversations. Um, that's why I love when people reach out to me from other cities and they're like, I want to start a campaign. How do I even go about this? Um, cause I know that people are very well intentioned and want to start something, but maybe they don't have the political knowledge. They don't know how to navigate through their local governments. And that's a really important piece of this. Cause you know, in many areas, I don't know if Pittsburgh, you can do ballot initiatives. There are some jurisdictions where you're not even allowed to do that. So you have to work with your local lawmakers. And it's, it's kind of an art to do that. You know, I think lobbyists get a bad rap, but there's also lobbyists out there that are advocating they do. for really good they causes. <laughs> and they right. do good work. They use yeah. their, their, you know, the work that they've done on the Hill and their influence to then come and help others, right. Mm -hmm. Who maybe don't have those connections. But I just want to say to you um, that, that depression that you talk about, I, I describe it as being gray, like there was no color. I couldn't hear anyone's voice. And I too had a, a boss and, you know, I was like, okay, I, I'm going to crawl under a bus, you know, and they were like, okay, just go and, and mm -hmm. do whatever you have to do. And, you know, it was 26 years ago and it's like, okay, here's the, here's your pill. But if you, I mean, you're going to help so many people. Me, you know, my time is done in, in raising my small children. But to just be able to help others and for you to be so brave to speak out is just, um, it's amazing and heartwarming. And I think women will, uh, you know, in so many different places will so appreciate your honesty and your help. Well, and your you. leadership. We just appreciate you so much. So we want to make sure that our listeners know exactly where they need to go to learn yeah. more about your initiative and how they can sign up for your newsletter. So where yeah. can we send our listeners? Um, plantmedicinecoalition.org. Um, if you need any information, it's just info at plantmedicinecoalition.org. I get all those emails. If you're curious about anything, you want more information about how to start a campaign, um, you are a person that has, you know, a testimonial about plant medicine. At some point when things open up again, we're going to have people come to the Hill and, you know, talk to their lawmakers about their experiences with healing and plant medicine. I mean, this is such an important discussion and the pandemic right now is really exacerbating 
um, this really terrible mental health crisis that we're in. And um, like therapies are a therapy, talk therapy itself is extremely inaccessible. I know for me, like one of the arguments I had against stopping therapy was, well, it's just too expensive. You know, I'm getting off a maternity leave soon. I'm going to have to start paying for childcare and that's extremely expensive here. So, you know, we just need to think about ways that we can transform our current system to a way that actually benefits people because, um, you know, right now we're all in survival mode. And um, after the pandemic passes, I think that the trauma is really going to set in and people are going to be really needing um, help here. And our government has to take on some of that responsibility and it has to be able to, you know, provide solutions for its citizens. We're just so well grateful said. to have you on here. Very well said. Thank you so much for being a part of the Vine, Melissa. Thank you, guys. This was such a wonderful conversation. We appreciate your leadership in the plant medicine space and look forward to continuing to support your efforts both locally and nationwide. Thanks to our listeners for joining us on another episode of The Vine featuring Melissa Lovansani, founder, chairwoman, and executive director of the Plant Medicine Coalition. Please join us by subscribing to The Vine, a plant media project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For cannabis and psychedelic news, please visit us online and sign up for our newsletter at plantmediaproject.com.